Welcome to Feminist Question Time, brought to you by Women's Declaration International, the leading global organisation defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. There's more information on the website womensdeclaration.com, where you will find our Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights. It has been signed by 31,043 people from 159 countries, and the declaration is supported by 436 organizations. We have over 100 volunteer activists, including 53 country contacts engaged in defending women's sex-based rights. This week, we have Vaishnavi Sunda from India. She's going to talk about historic women-led protests in India. We have Rosa Borg from Malta, who's going to be talking about WDI related what we do on Spinster and why Spinster as a social media platform matters and what's what's good about it. We have MK Fain who set up Spinster and is also the founder of 4W. We'll talk to MK about uh, Spinster and we also have Dee who uh, manages the WDI Spinster account. We're going to have a discussion about uh, Spinster, what it does, and uh, other social media platforms, or sort of why why Spinster is very good. After that, we're going to have Luba Fine from Israel. She's an abolitionist activist promoting the Nordic model in Israel. She's going to talk to us about gender ideologists' crusade against the Nordic model. We're going to hand over now to Vaishnavi, who's going to who is our first panelist. So. I'll just introduce Vaishnavi. She's a, a filmmaker and she is the Women's Declaration International Country Contact um, for India. She also made the fantastic film. She's made lots of great films, but Dysphoric, which most of us, many of us have watched. But if you haven't watched it, you should definitely watch it. Thank you so much for speaking to us today. Uh, and over to you, Vaishnavi. So India, uh, with a population of 1.4 billion, is the second largest country in the world and is right behind China. We have 28 states and eight union territories, and we speak several hundreds of languages with several distinct dialects. India is extremely divided, first in the name of language, but also in the name of caste, religion, and region. This presentation is no way an exhaustive look at the subject, as there were countless women's movements that were made uh, that were, that never made it into history books. India is extremely hierarchical, so all the provisions discussed here have an implicit understand must have an implicit understanding that women belonging to oppressed castes and indigenous tribes couldn't enjoy some of the rights, while upper caste women could. Some of the provisions are so caste blind and have no access to several basic needs. Also, though there are numerous misogynistic practices in India, I'm focusing on ones that uh, were resisted and challenged by women and to a large extent, brought, they brought the practice to either scrutiny or abolition. First, we will take a look at the practice of Devadasi system. Devadasi was a religious practice dating back to the sixth century in several parts of India. It is a practice in which women were married to a deity of the temple. Later, the illegitimate sexual exploitation of the Devadasis became a norm, where these young women were forced to be prostituted to the village heads, temple stakeholders, landowners, etc. The term Devadasi literally means God's servant, but they are known by different names in different areas. 
there is a term called tevar adial in uh, tamil speaking areas of south india uh, in common parlance of the language calling a woman tevadiya became a derogatory term implying that she is a slut or a whore or something like that but the word originally comes from the women that were trapped in the devadasi system the earliest recorded evidence of the existence of tevaradial occurs in the 11th century inscription of rajaraja chola who donated lands and houses to the dancers who performed services to the temple uh, there was a very unique case uh, where adoption rights of devadasi system was very different from the rest of the country devadasis were encouraged to adopt children from any caste and call themselves the child's mother while this was not afforded to the women who were devadasis it this practice was not done because the law cared about them in any way it was one way to ensure that there is a long lineage of girl children who could be put back into the system of devadasis interestingly only female children born to daughters of devadasis were put back into the system and not female children born to sons of devadasis the children born to the sons of devadasis were allowed to live a regular life marry get educated etc as a form of golden ticket out of the system but a daughter's daughter had to go through rigorous training in performance singing dancing largely disallowed from getting formal education if there were two daughters the mother could choose to send one to school retain one for the system marriage rights though there were no law prohibiting them from marrying uh, there were restrictions about who they could marry along with the performers there were also these instrumentalists workers and technicians etc who were part of that troupe devadasis were prevented from marrying men within the troupe and men from the troupe however could marry the daughters of devadasis sons so very convoluted sort of a hierarchical system within a misogynistic practice uh, we need to understand that this group was largely insular and they were seen as an outcast so it was not it was not that the devadasi women would not uh, would not want to marry outside but she was not readily accepted as a wife by say an upper caste man or anyone else living in quote unquote civilized society there were two women who played a significant role in the abolition of the system we will look at them individually now muvalur ramamridam uh, she was among one of the early social reformers and an important political figure who worked for women's rights all the way until the time of her death in 1962 hailing from the community herself muvalar pushed uh, to bring an end to the devadasi system by creating plays writing speaking on stage uh, lobbying with the politicians speaking out about the harms that are done within the community a quality not many women within the community dared to have so within the devadasi system there was a higher status devadasi there was a lower status devadasi so because higher status devadasis bring with it a certain superficial privileges of being in the company of say wealthy men who offer marginal financial security uh, right to reap uh, the harvest from a land but not own the land and privilege of being decked with jewelry during performances and things like that uh, when muvalar tried to bring an end to the system uh, she faced a lot of resistance from the community itself because they thought she was depriving them they thought uh, she was depriving them of uh, all the benefits that they were uh, uh, enjoying uh, though the devadasi abolition bill was brought about in 1947 the practice continues to this day another iconic uh, woman uh, within the uh, devadasi abolition movement is uh, dr mutalakshmi reddy uh, dr reddy was born in a, with a to a brahmin father and a mother from isai velalar community as they call it the devadasi community itself contrary to social conventions she, she was educated she made her way 
to becoming the first woman house surgeon in the Madras Maternity Hospital. She married a man of her choice from a different caste at the age of 28. Uh, she was a strong force behind setting up the uh, Avai Home for Orphan Girls. She set up the Arial Cancer Institute and found ways to provide scholarship for Dalit girls and hostel for Muslim girls to pursue education. She actively worked against trafficking for, uh, of women for sex work. Uh, deeply concerned by the state of women in her community, she was particularly forceful in her argument to abolish the Devdasi system. In 1927, uh, the Women's India Association nominated her to be the Madras Legislative Council as vice president. It was in this council that she brought the bill to abolish the Devdasi practice in 1930. Though it was rejected on that occasion, it brought attention to the practice, therefore alerting more policymakers to come forward and talk about it. Apart from these two incredible women, of course, there were several, several uh, women who tirelessly worked towards the abolition of this misogynistic practice, while uh, they successfully abolished it in law. It is unfortunate that our society has kept practice, uh, this practice thriving. We will now look at the practice of child marriage. Uh, a, third, a third of world's child's, child brides are in India, according to a report uh, from UNESCO. Um, child marriage causes high rates of maternal, maternal mortality and one woman dies every seven minutes in India because of pregnancy-related causes. And children are even more vulnerable to such, such dangers. Poverty is one of the main causes of child marriage and more than half of the Indian population live below the poverty line with no money to afford a decent shelter or a proper meal. During such cases, a child is given away in exchange for some money or if the family thinks it would get her some sort of a security. There was this one woman who was uh, uh, a strong force behind bringing this practice to the attention of the policymakers. Uh, Rukuma Bai Raut was married at the age of 11. A child bride uh, herself became a fierce advocate when she uh, contested her husband's claim to conjugal rights in an iconic court case that led to the passage of Age of Consent Act in 1891. Uh, and this changed the age of consent from 10 to 12. And at that time, this was a big deal. The case against her was reopened and she was given two choices. Either she could live with her husband or spend six months in jail. She chose to go to jail rather than spending time with her husband. During this period, however, uh, Raut had written a series of articles in various newspapers as an anonymous journalist adopting a pseudonym. Rukma Bai uh, was born to a woman who herself was a victim of child marriage, who was married off at the age of 14 and gave birth to Rukma Bai at the age of 15. And she also became a widow at 17. In 1929, after her retirement, she published a pamphlet called Parda, uh, which means a, a, a veil and the need for its abolition, arguing that young widows were being denied the chance of actively contributing in Indian society. Because if your husband is dead, uh, even if you are a child who was married to an older man, uh, you will be ostracized in the society and you have to wear a certain type of clothes that sort of makes you stand out uh, and people can know that you are a child widow. But despite the best efforts of women who spend their whole life trying to bring legalities to safeguard children, this evil practice is just as rampant in modern India. In 2020, during lockdown, a 16-year-old girl called the authorities in the south uh, state of Tamil Nadu, and she filed a complaint against her parents. She claimed that she was being forced to marry a 39-year-old man, and she asked for help. The girl's parents had lost their jobs during the pandemic, and she had received this offer from a man who said he'd take care of all the wedding expenses, said he didn't even want dowry. So, uh, so the parents were forced to consider it, but thankfully, because the woman, uh, little uh, girl escalated the issue, the authorities could intervene and stop it. But the district of Tiruvannamalai, where this incident happened, claims that the second highest number of child marriage happens in 
that part of Tamil Nadu, uh, which saw 168 such cases in 2019. And a report during the same year uh, by UNICEF states that one of one in three of world's child bride brides live in India. And of the country's 223 million child brides, 102 million were married before turning 15. Now we will look at the practice of dowry. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar uh, with this. Basically, it's uh, uh, dowry is any property or valuable or security given or agreed to be given either directly or indirectly by, by the bride's family to the grooms. The system incorporates payments in the form of capital, durable goods, vehicles, real estate, among others. Uh, but uh, it, is, uh, it is on the condition that the man would accept to marry the woman. This practice followed, is followed across religion, caste, and class of people. It is prevalent in neighboring countries like Pakistan, Nepal, and Bangladesh as well. The origin of dowry system in India is unclear, but it seems to have mentioned in the early scriptures uh, as an acceptable form of transaction. During the pre-colonial times, it was followed as a matter of prestige, where the bride's family can flaunt their wealth or class status, and flamboyant weddings were considered a status symbol. Despite dowry-related violence, the practice went on undeterred. Uh, during colonial times, uh, the practice became a norm, and post-1947, uh, post our independence, it boomed because there was absolutely no checks and balance on it whatsoever. While there was some resistance in the post-independence period, all efforts to stop the practice had to take a back step because uh, the authorities thought that the country was establishing itself after independence, so all uh, focus should be on that. Some real agitation actually only took place in the 1970s, led by women's groups in various states of the country. Women took to streets, demanding an end of dowry-based deaths and violence. Until then, death by fire, which is usually the most common way of uh, killing a, a woman uh, during, this, during such practice, was considered a suicide and a family matter, and authorities wouldn't intervene. Even when the victims lived long enough to incriminate the husband or the in-laws, the follow-up was so delayed or not thorough that in the end, those cases were registered as suicides after all. This was probably also because uh, the law specifically meant for crimes related to dowry demands were not in place by then. However, even when the case were registered as murder, the testimony of the victim was considered as insufficient evidence. In 1961, which was about 11 years after the creation of Indian constitution, the parliament passed its first legislation against dowry, as, uh, against dowry uh, and in the form of an act called Dowry Prohibition Act, which criminalized demanding or giving dowry. This act uh, was given significantly more teeth in amendments in 1984 and 86. The 1986 one especially added dowry debts to the section uh, 304 of the Indian Penal Code, which made dowry debts as culpable homicides. In 1983, another section was added to the Penal Code, which further strengthened the anti-dowry provisions and obliged the police to arrest a woman's in-laws in case of harassment and of cruelty. It was a landmark achievement for women's rights in the country. According to this section, cruelty specifying both physical and mental harassment was seen as a non-bailable offense. Interestingly, what happened because of agitation about the dowry system is something called the Indian Evidence Act also came to be. If a man was contributing to violence, he could be punished on the basis of abetment to suicide. Lastly, there was also an important amendment of section 174 where criminal procedure code, which made it compulsory to do a post-mortem of the woman who died within seven years of marriage under suspicious circumstances. So these achievements were brought about by uh, the relentless uh, advocacy by women's groups, common women uh, who were out on the streets fighting to the nail for it. 
the uh, earliest protests against dowry in the post-independence feminist movement were made by the progressive organization of women in hyderabad in 1975 where 2000 people turning up uh, at one at, at a venue among uh, and hold several demonstrations eradicating dowry was also an agenda of other women's movements like the uh, shahada movement of 1972 however in 1977 the movement gained momentum because delhi uh, the country's capital joined in on the protest because that was where most of the dowry deaths were happening i want to particularly bring your attention to this one amazing woman called uh, satyarani chadda who you see in the bottom right of the presentation she was a women's rights activist known for launching the anti dowry movement in india she embarked on this difficult journey of social and legal reformation in the 1980s together with a fellow activist um, and both of them lost their daughters to dowry disputes together uh, they spent decades campaigning for justice and to change the dowry practices in india but uh, satyarani chadda passed away on 1st july 2014 and will always be remembered as a symbol of grit and resilience despite the advocacy that spanned their entire lives dowries just as rampant kerala known to be a progressive state and at the moment if i may add also considered as the wokest state of all of india was in the news recently due to the suspicious deaths of three women continuously all below the age of 25 and the cause of the death uh, suspected to be violence because of dowry and yet kerala prioritizes gender ideology at the moment now I'll quickly run you through some of the rights and the women's movements that helped us achieve them these are these are just give me goosebumps just thinking about it uh, we are only going to look at certain landmark achievements there are several rights which have been achieved uh, much later uh, even in modern times because of women's groups and advocacy but um, again though these laws exist on paper whether they are accessible effective in actuality warrants a different webinar in itself Uh, we also need to understand that the laws in general are sometimes bundled which makes the efficacy of one law subject to the efficacy of another for example reproductive integrity for example in of a female who is married as a child is a conundrum because she should be ideally protected by both but the legal system often drags on drags it on for years debating which direction to proceed in Uh, the women's suffrage movement in india first gathered momentum due to the female participation in the freedom struggle now that again is a entirely uh, uh, deep topic that we could discuss another time beginning with the swadeshi movement in bengal from 1905 to 1908 as well as uh, with the support of the british suffragists the voices of indian suffragists were brought to the attention to uh, the lawmakers and policy makers there is Uh, so much it could be discussed about the swadeshi movement alone but this particular instance i'm only sort of throwing in some glimmer in 1919 uh, there were so many pleas and reports indicating support for women to have the right of vote uh, there's something called the indian office which is an office uh, under british control that was considered to be dealing with all matters concerning india and india's policies or whatever and before the joint select committee of the house of lords and commons uh, they were meeting to actually finalize the electoral regulation reforms at that time indian suffragists made a presentation about the need for voting rights though they they were not granted voting rights nor the right to stand in election the government of india act 1919 allowed provincial provincial councils to determine if women could vote provided they met certain stringent property income or educational levels so not all women could vote at that time some women could vote if if they owned properties which was a, a clever way to uh, categorize that because not a lot of women owned properties at that time um, different provinces 
of British India therefore extended limited suffrage rights to the women in the 1920s. The Government of India Act 1935 expanded women's suffrage and even provided reserved seats for women in central and provincial legislatures. For voting rights, uh, full voting rights were awarded with the passing of the Indian Constitution in 1950, which provided for uni universal adult suffrage. The recognition of uh, sexual and reproductive rights of women in the country still remains negligible. Reproductive rights in India are understood only in the context of selective issues like child marriage, female feticide, sex selection, abortion, menstrual health, and hygiene issues. This is reflected in election manifestos where several parties uh, who promised to make certain, uh, certain provisions for women, like making registration of marriage compulsory or implementation of laws prohibiting child marriage, etc., providing reproductive menstrual health services to all women. Um, they also promised to make marital rape illegal, which is still not yet. Um, so those were just party promises that politicians made, but nothing came, came of it. Uh, before 1971, abortion was criminalized under Section 312 of the Indian Penal Code. Actually, it could be, um, uh, it, it was described as uh, intentionally causing miscarriage, uh, except in cases where abortion was carried out to save lives of the woman, or it was a punishable, um, or it was a case of minor or certain very uh, unique cases like that. Until that time, it was a punishable offense and it criminalized the women as well as the service providers. However, regressive all those things seem to be, unsafe abortions are the third leading cause of maternal deaths in India. Uh, researchers have shown that half the pregnancies in India are unintended and about a third result in abortion. Only 22% of abortion are done through public and private health facilities. Most of it are done, just done illegally. Uh, lack of access to safe abortion clinics, particularly in public hospitals, and the stigma and the attitude towards women, especially young unmarried women seeking abortion con contributed to this and it continues to this day. And doctors also refuse to perform abortions on young women or demand that they get consent from either their parents or spouses, despite no such requirement is uh, needed by law. This forces many women to turn to often unsafe abortions. Um, actually, per law, we have something called the Medical Termination of Pregnancy Act of 1971, which provides termination only up to 20 weeks. Uh, if an unwanted pregnancy has proceeded beyond 20 weeks, women have to approach a medical board and courts and seek permission for termination, which is extremely difficult and cumbersome. The law does not accommodate non-medical concerns about the economic cost of raising a child or poverty or anything like that. Effects on, on career decisions, etc., are not taken into consideration whatsoever. Though uh, sex selective abortions are illegal, India has a growing case of female feticide where, uh, and, and girl children femicide, where um, though there are strict laws against it, uh, families have found a way to pay money or something like that and find the sex of the child and then they kill it. Or if the child is born within a day or two, there are these uh, places that you can go to if you're in a rural part of India where there's this old woman who can just give you some, give the child some poison and the child is dead because it is uh, a, a female child. And immediately after that, the mother is made pregnant, hoping that there will be a male child this time. Of course, several women's groups have worked tirelessly to bring this light and the dangers of lack of medical termination and continue to raise voices, but things continue to remain grim at the moment. Now, what uh, right to inheritance? Um, five Indian states, sometime between 1970 and 1990, they amended the Hindu Succession Act 1956 to allow equal inheritance rights for women and men. And in 2005, the central government mandated equal inheritance. And this is when all other states uh, implemented the reform because these five states sort of set the precedence. 
for Muslim women, uh, the laws are a little different according to the Sharia law. The Indian Succession Act of 1925 governs the inheritance and um, succession laws applicable to Parsis, Christians and Jews uh, sort of relied upon that. However, there are several groups that are, you know, probably um, far away, far removed from civilization and in um, some sort of a terrain like the Himalayas or something like that. They continue to fight for their rights of inheritance. Um, because of patriarchal nature of preference of male children and how the property needs to be passed on to the male child because uh, the girl is considered to be a liability where she will be married off and will leave to go to another family. Therefore, she was not considered important enough to uh, have any share in the family property. Again, uh, the right of inheritance of female agrarian or homestead land where uh, farmers are fighting for right now is a completely different issue. That's not an inheritance based on familial Passover. This is something else where if you're working in a, in a, in a farm for a certain amount of time, um, there are some provisions where men could have access to that land in a form of partial ownership or something like that, but none of that is applicable to women, even if they are the ones that are working tirelessly in it. But that's a subject that we have to go in deep about some other time because that's a topic in itself. Now, obviously, women understood the importance of education as a way of empowerment very, very early on. Uh, for centuries, women were considered, uh, were considered to be inferior. They were uh, constrained in the four walls of the house or the kitchen and the education was reserved for the upper caste men. The work of these educators and activists formed the backbone uh, for a more equitable world for women and girls. Uh, a wider prevalence of women's education didn't just mean more women being educated, but it meant women, women entering the public sphere. It paved a way for women to be leaders, women in science, and a life of independence and dignity for them. Because there's several women who have worked their entire life, I'm not even exaggerating, who have worked to make sure such a thing is possible where little girls have access to education. The, but the work of one woman uh, requires a special mention, Savitri Bai Phule. Uh, who is known as the first female teacher in the first ever school for girls built in India. Along with her husband, Jyotira Phule, she worked throughout her life for the dignity of the life of oppressed caste people and women. Uh, along with Fatima Sheikh, who was also considered to be a first Muslim teacher, they started the first ever school for girls in 1948 in Pune. By 1951, they had three similar schools running in Pune. They established an educational society where with the help of uh, the established schools already, they could go ahead and uh, uh, talk uh, more in detail about the need for such a, a system where empowered girls are able to then educate their parents. Therefore, that brings in more revenue to the family. The farmers who are otherwise uh, not educated are now able to uh, learn to do basic arithmetic, which means they can't be uh, fooled or uh, exploited by the uh, vicious landowners uh, or later during the colonial time by uh, the British people, etc. So she went around and explained how educating one girl child is uh, empowering the entire family. Now, apart from her, I would also like to just name a few of these women who you see on the right. Fatima Sheikh is the one that I mentioned. There is also Pandita Ramabai, uh, there is Anutai Wag, there is Abala Bose, Kamini Roy, Ramabai Ranade, Chandra Prabha Saikani, Tarabai Shinde, and Sarla Devi. These are all just some of the women, but this is just to give you a sense of 
how much work has gone in and how much these women have toiled their entire life to make sure that girls' education has been made possible. Although I must add a caveat that though they spend their entire life doing it, the reality in India, even today, is very, very grim where children's education are not taken as a priority. So another thing that I thought I couldn't discuss but I wanted to mention was uh, about the women's rights to work. Uh, given that the early women laborers were mostly from the unorganized sector, the topic too is very vast. Women's movement regarding right to work is uh, a, a topic in itself where uh, women fought for the rights of maternity rights, they streamlined work hours, they, they worked towards prevention of sexual harassment, they worked, up, worked on pensions, they worked on unionizations, etc. Um, I have done several vlogs on my channel concerning workers' rights women as workers and right of women laborers and so much more that's my vlog if you want to have a look at it now in conclusion i will leave you with a few other untouched uncovered women's rights movements that even indians don't know or care about uh, india's northeastern states uh, and women's agitation protests over there about custodial rapes trafficking army rapes border disputes and every other misogynistic practices uh, that the rest of the country faces requires a special a discussion in itself. But this is one of the very important aspects that we need to consider when you're talking about historic movements. Though it's declared unconstitutional, India practices the caste system, a social hierarchy that places Indians born to a certain caste to be subjected to unspeakable violence. Women from said caste face double discrimination in the form of caste as well as sex-based violence. About 10 Dalit women in India are raped per day. There's obviously also uh, women belonging to religious minorities who are fighting for their rights. There is something called the Citizenship Amendment Act, which was passed by the current BJP government, which has challenged, um, which was challenged by several uprisings nationwide. And the women have been at the forefront of it. Muslim women of India have also long resisted misogynistic practices imposed upon them by the Sharia law. Unfortunately, due to the communal tensions, the voices of Muslim women have always drowned out. Women have spoken against triple talaq, or forced hijab on some instance, or resisting a religiously motivated banning of hijab in schools in some instances, etc. But their movement within the historic rights of women, uh, women's movement is very, very relevant as well. We also have women who actively participate in uh, the safeguarding of environment, obviously, because uh, women, women are concerned about nature more than anything else. Women uh, have been at the forefront of safeguarding natural resources, and you know, large group of protesters have gathered to prevent deforestation, building of illegal mines that would destroy both the ecology as well as the lives of uh, families living around there. So women have been at the forefront of it. And uh, while all this has been happening, things are still very grim. The women, though we have this glorious, glorious history of women's rights movement in India, things right now have taken a sudden turn to something entirely different. If I can leave you with the last uh, slide in conclusion, so you can consume what's written on the screen. We are now working on how to make women men, how to make men women, how to remove gender, how to give girls chest binders, how BDSM culture can make more women assertive in work. And we also talk about first Indian transgender mother. And then of course, on the left side, there is this man who talks about how uh, he needed to use sanitary napkins because he was bleeding for two weeks after his vaginoplasty. Although in his Instagram post, he makes a poignant point about 23 million girls dropping out of schools because of period poverty. I just wonder if he went and asked their pronouns. I wonder how he otherwise knows that they are girls. I often get asked if there are actual women's organizations that are exclusively for women anymore left in India. 
but it's very hard to talk about because all the grassroots organizations which were at one point talking about anti-caste movements, the women that are suffering within the caste system have all gone woke. So if you really think about it, what you thought was a grassroots movement has also been hijacked by gender ideology. So what's left are just actual women who are just organizing privately, not under the name of an organization, not with a website, not anything else, are out on the street campaigning for real things, are the only women's organizations that are left which actually think of women's sex, uh, sex-based rights. We're going to move on now to um, Rosa Borg. And first of all, and she's going to be talking about Spinster. And then after her presentation, we're going to have a chat between Rosa, MK Fain and Dee from the USA. Um, So the focus of this is going to be on Spinster, why it matters, what WDI has been doing in relation to Spinster and what we're hoping to achieve. And so thank you so much, Rosa, for coming on to talk to us and introduce this topic. Um, Rosa is Maltese. She's a radical feminist and activist. Among other tasks, she has been managing WDI's Spinster account since last summer. So thank you so much for coming and talking to us, Rosa, and over to you. My pleasure. I'm going to focus on why Spinster is unique and why using a woman-centering space matters and makes a difference. As the saying goes, there is no feminism without an unassailable definition of woman. We cannot defend what we cannot deny. And I would also ask, how can we define what we aren't allowed to name? As a social media site, Spinster is unique um, because it was created by a woman and her partner, MK Fain. Um, because the moderators are women, because over 90% of the users on on Spinster are women, and while men are welcome, disrespecting women isn't. In fact, uh, women-hating practices such as porn are, are banned, are not allowed, and most importantly, we are free to, to use clear and accurate language. So unlike what has happened on other sites, women will not be banned for, for example, saying that only women have a cervix or that men cannot become women. In fact, this uh, ties with Article 4 of the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which states that women have the right to hold opinions without interference, and this should include the right to hold and express opinions about gender identity without being subject to harassment, prosecution, or or punishment. So it's right in in line with with our aims. Um, What kinds of things do we share on our account? You can find invitations and video clips from our webinars, including those webinars organized in different languages um, from our different country contexts and their teams. The newsletter links shared in in the chat during feminist question time and other statements issued by WDI or campaigns that we're working on. Uh, We also share informative articles, videos, podcasts and information from individuals or or organizations in the fight to safeguard women's rights. It's another point of contact where women can reach us. We've had women reaching out to us and drawing our attention, for example, to bills which are going to be discussed and which we should be aware of or asking questions about signing the declaration. And it's 
really good to be able to do it in such a woman-friendly space. These are screenshots just to give you an idea of the kind of posts that we share. Uh, there's the invitation to feminist question time that's from a German webinar. There's a statement from our sisters in Mexico who were harassed um, for organizing a feminist forum. They were harassed by MRAs. We also, as I said, share posts from other individuals or organizations. And the aim of sharing these posts is twofold. It's both to give uh, these women more reach and uh, amplify their voices, but also to explain in practical terms what the declaration means and how it can be used in practice. For example, what does uh, Article 8, which deals with violence against women, how can that be applied to the woman being prostituted in Holbeck? Or how does uh, Article 3, which deals with uh, physical and reproductive in integrity, what does that mean in terms of surrogacy and wombs for rent? Uh, Spencer is both a place where women can discuss serious issues. You know, we, we've, uh, we've had, for example, threads about abuse or harassment or problems with relationships, but it's also, it also has a more lighthearted side. Um, these are posts by other users who are highlighting how ridiculous at times gender ideology can be. And this, it's liberating to be able to say, look, the emperor has no clothes and to be able to do that without, without having uh, repercussions for it. It's also a place for women to just be, you know, and to be there largely without being in the male gaze, because like I said, it's mostly women who use spinster. And we, we discuss our interests like hobbies, films, pets, music, women's music, for example, one of my favorite accounts that I follow on my personal account is uh, uh, a woman who shares a lot of women's music, women's poetry. Yes, I'm seeing in the chat, yes, Elaine Hatton. It's, it's important and it's powerful to be, to be able to laugh. We also, every Spencer anniversary, um, every month we have cake. It's a community. So what are our hopes and our plans for the future? Um, when we changed our, our name in January, we had to start from scratch and we lost over 500 followers. So apart from seeing more users on Spinster as a whole, I, I would like to double our followers um, by the end of the year. It would be very helpful if there was also another volunteer because so much is happening all over the world and there's so much content to go through and which would be useful for other women that we could share more if we had someone else. Um, something else that I would like to see, but not, not coming from us, I mean, coming from the technical side, would be the possibility to schedule posts. But most importantly, um, I hope that we can make better use of women-centering resources. We are so conditioned um, socially to, to use mainstream resources, whether, whether it's a social media platform, like Spinster or a news site, or, you know, instead of buying from a woman-owned business, we, we go to the more popular businesses. 
when we could be creating more initiatives like Spinster and making more use of them and supporting and investing in us, investing in, in women. So I hope that Spinster can be an example of that and lead to more of it. Spinster isn't perfect. Some features like, for example, the search engine needs refining and it's, it's a small site. But I think the antidote to that is not to give up on it. Rather, it's to be there more and invite our friends and make better use of it and make it better, make it what we think it can become. And even though some of us, maybe we don't recognize the potential it has, if it's um, MRAs do recognize this potential because they've uh, managed to get the Spinster app banned from the Google store. So they've made it uh, harder to access. And there have been also some nonsensical articles criticizing it because you know, how dare we, how dare women have something that prioritizes women instead of pandering to men. And I hope that Spinster can serve like an example of what we can do when we decide not to go with the status quo and to continue to be subversive. I would like to thank the women who share our posts and all those who support us. Uh, we've had, for example, women who use it and then share on Tumblr and on our other sites. And also if there's anyone who needs uh, technical assistance, I'm sure there'll be someone. I, I would be willing to help and there'll be others as well. If you just uh, start an account and put a message in, in the, just share it, it there'll, be, there'll be women who are willing to help you. I'll just introduce MK is a feminist writer, activist and engineer. She's founder and editor-in-chief of 4W, as well as uh, setting and co-founder of Spinster XYZ. And D is uh, from the USA and manages the WDI Getter and Spinster accounts. So I'm gonna hand over to you, Rosa, to maybe get the ball rolling on this conversation. I think something we would benefit from MK would be if you just gave an overview, a simple overview of how it works. Finster is sort of set up as in a similar format to Twitter. So if you're used to Twitter, it should be mostly familiar to you. If you're not, then it may be a little bit different than other social media sites you're used to. Basically, it's the same concept as any social media site where you make a post and then people can engage in that post in various ways. Something that's different about Spinster, though, is that Spinster is part of a larger platform called the Fediverse. And what this does is the Fediverse is a series of websites, social media platforms that are all able to communicate with each other if they so choose. So in this way, Spinster is not an isolated community. We are able to communicate to people on various other parts of the Internet, although uh, when we first joined, there was major backlash to Spinster and feminists being on the Fediverse, and we were pretty much instantly banned by most liberal-leaning platforms, which are very male-dominated, very uh, TRA-dominated. So we do federate with a few other servers still, and something that I found particularly fun about Spinster has been that many women came and then learned about the technology and then were able to create their own sites based off of it. So it's sort of an on-ramp for women to learn about uh, really controlling their own freedom of speech on the internet. And uh, yeah, basically that's what Spinster is. 
people who aren't interested in feminism or in what we usually share, they can still see our posts, which is good. Yes. Yeah, in some ways, Spinster is sort of a, a small community of women who are close-knit and have, you know, inside jokes and their own culture that they've mm -hmm. developed and their own references. But in another way, you know, we're connected to millions of other people online. And sometimes when we do branch out of our Spinster community and start to talk to some of the other people on the internet, then really interesting debates and conversations can happen. And I've been pleasantly surprised to see the impact we've been able to make on some servers that are normally hostile to feminists and women, actually kind of seeing, oh, like these people have interesting ideas, they have a good sense of humor, you know, we can actually uh, coexist and get along. So that's been really interesting. It's good even in terms of, not just in terms of feminism, but even in terms of our hobbies and things. For example, some of the accounts that I follow uh, are, are not from spinster and they're about art and nature and things like that. It gives you such a wide variety of choice. I'd like to say that I think that the existence of spinster changes everything. I think it changes Twitter, it changes Facebook mm -hmm. because I think spinster being there gives us the alternative. So I reckon the other platforms think, well, we can't be too mean to the feminists because they'll all leave. And so it, we should all the more support Spinster and do what Rosa said is be on there and make it stronger. Um, because I think it's holding the line, you know, that they would be going a lot further. So it changes everything. The other thing I want to say is I think it met a patriarchal space. I think Mary Daly, who talks about, a lot about outside patriarchy, um, talks about the loveliness of metapatriarchal space. And I definitely see Spinster as that, which is a massive achievement in this system we're in. Yes, and the name is partially inspired by Mary Daly, of course. Oh, really? <laughs> and Sheila Jeffries. Yeah. So yeah, she talks a lot about that. the Spinster and some of her writing. Yeah. And Sheila's book, Sheila Jeffries' book, The Spinster and oh, Her yeah. Enemies, it is, yes. yeah, is. Yep, absolutely. I mean, that that was really one of the first feminist works that really changed my life, I would say. And so, uh, yeah, I was really excited to be able to name Spinster after that. And, you know, it's a little tongue in cheek, but I think that we've all uh, really had fun with it. I don't necessarily think that Spinster by itself is convincing Twitter to not ban individual women. But what we do know is that when people are silenced on Twitter, we see them go to alternate platforms in order to still be heard and as a space to still connect with their audience and followers. And so I'm glad that Spinster can be one of those spaces. And it's nice that it's a women-centric and feminist-centric space because the other alternatives are usually conservative spaces. And there, there's a time and a place for that. And it's great to be able to reach a different audience than feminism usually reaches. But sometimes you want to kind of retreat into your community a little bit. And I think that that can also be nice. Um, but I will say that Twitter is threatened as a whole by alternative platforms like Spinster, but the Fediverse as a whole. And we know that because they're actually in the middle right now of a project called Blue Sky, which is uh, aimed at adding federated features similar to what we have on Spinster and the Fediverse to Twitter. And so they see that the technological direction we've gone in is the future of social media. 
And, you know, regardless of if you think social media is a net good or bad for society, honestly, I'm not even sure. I do think it's important that we are moving in a direction that's more open and more freedom respecting. So I think that's a benefit overall. Dee, can you tell us what you do for um, on Spinster and for WDI USA? Um, pretty similar to what Rosa does. I post... Um, uh, posts from or videos, YouTube videos, um, uh, opinion pieces from different websites, just news in general that covers gender identity. And say for the feminist question time, I post those videos. Do you like Spinster? Have you been going on oh, it for quite a while? Oh, yes. I've been on Spinster probably maybe since 2020. So it's really fun in there because I just can relax a little bit and like Rosa and MK was saying, kind of vent a little bit, but you can also post really funny stuff. I mean, there was one time where I was going back and forth with another user posting uh, music videos. So, and you're getting to make surveys and stuff up there. So as serious as some of the things we talk about up there, it can also be really fun. Yes, and what I found, um really good since um, Dee took over is that she she has, um, like I said, there's so much happening that I can't cover everything. There's only a, so much that, that I can go through in terms of information and having um, an American perspective, someone who is more focused on, on what is happening on the US and being able to share both, it, it's, it's really helpful. Right, there is a lot, there really is a lot. Sometimes I can be on and it'll be hours, but for everything out there, I mean, you can be on for hours and hours and hours just posting stuff because things happen daily. So you'll never really get through everything. And you'll see users who are also sharing their stuff. You're like, oh, well, that's interesting. Let me post this too. So you can yes. really going forever. That's a, another reason why it would be helpful to have um, more women there so that we, we can reach more people and then use it also to post that on other sites. Right, exactly. But um, the Getter account a little, it's different to say the least. There's not that fuzzy feeling there. So uh, I still do the same thing I do on Spinster, but yeah, yeah it's, it's a wholly different animal. So, but yeah, definitely a totally different experience from a women-centered um, website. I think that's what makes the difference, both um, in, in the sense of administration, that it's women-centered, spinster, but also the users, that most of us are women. It's, it's like you said, Joe. it's, it's, uh, it's a woman's creation mostly. I mean, I was a refugee when I first um, joined Spinster. It was because I was really sick of the misogyny. And it was so refreshing just, just to be able to be with other women. And for example, Twitter has a, a limit on the character count. With Spinster, you can write properly. So the posts are, are much longer, which is yeah. good as well. That's what I kind of like about Spinster. So what I'm uh, posting, say if, um, feminist question time. We have somebody from South Africa or something like that. If they have a, um, a, a page off the main women's declaration website, so you do the country contact, I can put it in 
as a link. So somebody from South Africa might be like, oh, there's one for us here. Mm -hmm. Let me, or if we're doing, um, uh, I think Radical Women Perspectives, I can't remember the name now. If there's a book- Radical Feminist Perspectives, yeah. Right. So if there's a book, the book that's being discussed, I can go find it on Amazon or eBay and I'll put a link in there. So it's like, oh, I'm interested in this book. There's a link, let me go buy it. What are your plans for Spinster now? How's, what are the next steps and what would, what can we do to help? So some people have asked how they can join, whether there's an app or not. And as Rosa mentioned, we have been banned from every app store, including alternative app stores. Uh, so the best way to join, you can join from your phone also, just by going to the website, spencer.xyz, and then pinning it to your home screen. Um, as far as the next steps, we are working right now on some performance improvements that I, are really gonna speed up the home timeline, make things uh, easier and smoother as well as some uh, other features. I don't wanna promise anything yet because it's always changing, but we do have some good stuff that's going on and that people are working on right now. So uh, feel free to join and there will be updates. I'm now really pleased to say we have Luba Fine from Israel. She is an abolitionist activist promoting the Nordic model in her country, Israel. Um, where it came into force recently. She's also a volunteer for a UK-based feminist NGO, Philia, and she's going to talk to us about a gender ideologist's crusade against the Nordic model. Thank you so much for coming on, Luba, and over to you. The gender ideology and pro-prostitution lobby crusade. Uh, have you ever noticed that the gender ideologists are extremely hostile towards the sex trade abolitionists like me? Most of you should really have, and the signs are everywhere. Can you see this? By the way, you can buy this pin for two pounds if you want. That's what I have seen uh, on uh, Google. So these struggles are so intertwined that, that uh, for the most part, the people who are emotionally invested in one of them will be invested in another one as well. For example, I was called TORF due to my support for the Nordic model long before I realized there is a contradiction between the gender ideology and feminism. Only then I made the a Google search to realize who are TORFs. And uh, then I found out that uh, they actually have uh, good arguments, right? So today I want to discuss two topics. One of them is uh, the crusade of the pro-prostitution lobby in Israel and uh, that uh, the gender ideologists support. And the, the theoretical basis of, of this interplay between uh, pro-prostitution ideology and gender ideology, it is, uh, maybe it is intuitively understood, but not, not discussed enough. So now, very, very briefly, historical context, because we already discussed it here. Uh, Israeli abolitionism began as a struggle of a handful of women against the human trafficking epidemic in, uh, that escalated during the 90s. In 2000, a former Knesset parliament member, Zehava Galon, set up the Parliamentary Inquiry Committee to fight against sex trafficking. In uh, 2006, the new anti-trafficking legislation was enforced. In, two, in 2008, in nine, yeah, in nine, the same MP proposed a sex purchase ban bill. After numerous change, numerous changes in the content of the law at the list of its supporters, Israeli lawmakers eventually outlawed the purchase of sex in 2018. The enforcement 
only began in, in, began in February 2021. So between the 2008 and 2018, the abolitionist coalition established exit services and promoted some uh, anti-sex trade regulation, less controversial maybe. What's, what's, what I want to, to say now that in every country that passed the sex purchase ban before, there was a social and political struggle between the supporters of the law and its organized opponents. You can learn about some of the struggles in the book by Norwegian feminists, Trina Korsvik and Anne Stoff. So in every country this book discusses, you will find politicians and the civil society NGOs supporting and opposing the Nordic model. In Israel, the struggle emerged differently. The sex purchase ban was highly controversial across all parts of Israeli society, but the opponents of the Nordic model did not organize until the end of 2018. It was too, too close to the law's passage, so nothing much could be changed then. By the end of 2018, very close to the actual passing of the law, the first buds of orga organized opposition to the Nordic model began. Before we elaborate on that, I do not think that the change should or can happen without organized resistance or any resistance. The Nordic model threatens the social norm that many men have adopted. It threatens a multi-million industry. So it is unlike, unlikely that a small group of women will say, well, now it's over and everyone will just nod their heads. It won't happen. Therefore, both sides, we and the other side, we must manage public debate, respond to each other's allegations and sometimes stop and check ourselves. Are we still right? So I, I accept the existence of this opposition. Anyway, between 2018 and 2020, the anti-Nordic model lobby was established. Toward the end of 2018, a group of people founded the argument who.men in the sex industry organization. So this organization promotes a sex workers work ideology and uh, according to them, the purchase of sex is legitimate consumer activity. In 2019, they were registered as, as a nonprofit. One uh, comment, the activists between this NGO are not exclusively people in the sex industry. The organization has 11 founders. To my best knowledge, more than half have no connection to the sex trade. Of this, Four are women from academia with PhD degrees, some of whom perform research, research related to the sex industry. I find it hypocritical when upper middle-class people who would never prostitute themselves, not even for a short time out of curiosity or as a part of their research, they insist that prostitution is a job. They know prostitution is not a job. They just believe that it's acceptable for people who are not of their social class. Right. Anyway, uh, the, the, their activism is still within uh, legitimate limits. It is legitimate, uh, legitimate for every person to hold any opinion on prostitution. I only find it dishonest to present activism of very privileged people as activism of sex workers. 
It could have been called sex workers and allies, but they called it sex workers speaking. And this phenomenon is familiar to us worldwide, and we could expect it in Israel. Everywhere we have middle-class people who are acting against the Nordic model and insisting they're just uh, listening to sex workers, but they're not just listening, they're loud and dominant in government and local authority meetings. They organize protests and uh, they represent the sex workers at, at conferences that happen. Their behavior is often intimidating. The NGO argument did not stay alone for long. And the, the other players joined them. You can see on the, on the slide. <clears throat> One, Ma'avarim in Hebrew transitions. This is an NGO for uh, people on trans spectrum, transgender rights NGO, a veteran organization that exists since 2010. It had a different purpose and became very dominant in the struggle against the Nordic model. Project Gila for the Trans Empowerment, registered in 2011 for the purpose of promotion of justice and transgender rights. Transiot Israel, which is uh, Trans Women of Israel, established in 2020 with the purpose of empowerment of, of the trans community <clears throat> and the informal uh, organization, Israel Strippers Union, established to fight against the closure of the strip clubs. Uh, the Norwegians uh, called this phenomenon the crusade of uh, the pro-prostitution lobby. I borrowed the, their terms because I liked it. So how did they look? Uh, how did it look in Israel? The crusade. First, they created the Schrodinger's prostitute. I call it this uh, way. Schrodinger's prostitute is someone who is, on the one hand, strong, earning well, and chose prostitution out of many alternatives, but on the other hand, will die if sex purchase ban is enforced. She does not suffer from any trauma of prostitution. She eats pimps and jones for breakfast, but under the sex purchase ban, all her clients will turn violent and she will have to work underground. And this rhetoric of the pro-prostitution lobby already uses one of those two figures, depending on the context. Uh, the other uh, uh, strategy was intimidation campaign. In December 2018, the transgender group Ma'avarim published a position paper which stated that the sex purchase ban was a death sentence for the trans community in Israel. This hyperbolic statement was repeated again and again in the social and in the mainstream media. Death sentence against the trans community. Thank God the law passed and no one died. Good, right? The pro-prostitution lobby made three appeals to the Supreme Court. One, against the Web Blocking Act. We have an uh, act that, uh, according to which we can block uh, virtual brothels. So the appeal was made by nine women who advertised on prostitution websites. The main argument was the freedom of occupation, which is interesting that the website owners did not join this appeal, only the women did. In uh, last year, the Supreme Court recommended they withdraw this appeal to avoid the ruling against them. 2020, an appeal against the sex purchase ban by trans Israel, trans women of Israel to the Supreme Court. The main argument uh, was uh, the trans community's dependence on prostitution for a living. 
Again, the Supreme Court rejected the appeal for technical reasons. Uh, 2021, an appeal against the decision of the state attorney to define lap dance as prostitution. In Israel, such a ruling exists. Two individual women from the Israeli Strippers Union. Again, the main argument was freedom of occupation. And the strip club, club's owners didn't join this appeal. The same tactic, women are in the front, the pimps are hiding. Few months later, the high court rejected this appeal as well. There were also attempts to convince the lawmakers and the policymakers to delay the law, apparently to bury it later. The lobby attended the parliament committees, met with policymakers, distributed position papers. In this domain, the freedom of occupation argument was not mentioned. The strategy was to convince uh, the decision makers that uh, we should get additional budgets for exit and rehabilitation under the sex purchase ban and the budget didn't reach on time. So the community of uh, sex workers, uh, they, depend, they depend on this money and the law should be delayed until uh, all the budgets are uh, rich. So they did not argue that prostitution is a legitimate job, but instead that there was not enough support for people who exit prostitution, especially the trans people. Now there is a loophole. We, we did have an extensive array of aid NGOs in 2018, but we will always need more assistance for survivors, right? This population needs every thread of help that we can get. So the pro-prostitution lobby, they tried to create a never-ending excuse to delay the law because there is never enough support. The, uh, uh, and this was clearly dishonest because the Israeli task force on human trafficking and prostitution appealed to the Supreme Court against the Ministry of Welfare and Social Affairs and demanded that the extra budget be transferred as up to aid and support NGOs. They made it, managed to speed up the money transfers for, for exit and rehabilitation. But the pro-prostitution lobby did not join this appeal. They never joined this appeal. They, they did not care about the budget. They just used it as a bargaining chip. Anyway, there were another attempts to stop the law. For example, the pro-prostitution lobby gained support from Netanyahu minister of uh, Netanyahu's minister of interior security. His name is Amir Ohana. Remember this name. He is an alt-right politician and he had the actual power to delay the law. Uh, thanks to him, the enforcement of the sex purchase ban only began uh, last year. So they did delay it. So remember this when someone bl blames torfs and swerves for collaborating with the far rights. Okay, so how did Israeli society react to the pro-sex trade lobby? Many people in my country, including some Nordic model activists, do not understand why the sex purchase ban is still controversial. I, I think that some people are naive. Some, uh, many women, uh, many people ask, why some women uh, in the, the sex industry oppose the sex purchase ban, it is good for them. And uh, why uh, people who claim uh, to help those women attack the Nordic model? And the elephant in the room is the, the transgender activists' opposition to the sex purchase ban. What is interesting is that transgender is 
probably the only demographic in the world, not just in Israel, who with 100 support for the legalized sex trade. And why? So how Israel has explained the crusade of, of the pro-prostitution lobby in general and the support of, by trans community in particular. So one argument is uh, uh, the women in, in the sex industry who believe that in sex work is work, probably they're very privileged prostitutes. This is not true. No woman in prostitution is privileged. Believe me, I know. Let's not create our version of Schrodinger's prostitute. But many women in prostitution use denial as a coping strategy. This phenomenon exists among other victims of trauma, such as violent relationships. Uh, another uh, uh, argument, uh, opponents of the Nordic model have not yet realized that we are expanding our aid and rehabilitation NGOs and the law brings more budget. This is not true. The NGOs and rehabilitation not a game changer for the pro-prostitution lobby. Let's forget it. Another assumption, opponents of the Nordic model did not understand yet how much suffering there is in the sex industry. We will explain them. Also, I don't think so. We have enough pieces of evidence of suffering in the sex trade. If you want it, you will find it. And also many people are appalled about the position of the trans rights NGOs and individuals. According to the data, this organization themselves distribute, most murders of trans people are in the sex industry. So it is difficult to understand how one can be trans activist without being an abolitionist. So some people explain uh, the trans community is too dependent on prostitution for employment. And maybe this is partially true, but uh, this is not a likely explanation because the majority of the trans people is not engaged in prostitution. And second, dependence on prostitution for employment cannot explain the sweeping opposition to abolitionism. Around the world, you will find extremely marginalized communities, poor women in South Africa, South America, Maori women in New Zealand, indigenous women in Canada, all overrepresented in the sex trade, but they are angry about this. And they have prominent abolitionist sex trade survivor-led organizations. We know them. Another excuse uh, for the uh, trans community uh, that uh, the trans community is attracted to the sex trade because only there are trans women treated as real women. Okay, this is bullshit. In recent years, there has been a lot of tension between feminists and trans activists. We know it, right? Uh, and the, the topic is whether you are defined by biological sex or by your gender identity. And uh, we are attacked for uh, seeing our biological sex, uh, sex as uh, our uh, denominator. Oh, but in these terms, the sex industry is the most transphobic place in the universe, right? Neither Pimps nor Jones respect the concept of gender identity. Jones buy bodies, they buy our bodies. They know what sex they want and they know what race, age and breast side they want. They don't care how you identify. They don't ever expect our identity as human being, forget about sex. So the brothels are full of torfs and swerves. They're run by torfs, by vi they're visited by torfs. Okay, so how did the crusade of the pro-prostitution lobby emerge and why do the gender ideologists support it? I see the reframing of the sex industry 
as a kind of acceptable job for destitute women as part of a broad neoliberal and, and anti-feminist ideology. I will talk about this now. I will tr try to do it uh, quickly. <laughs> Throughout its existence, feminism fought for women's liberation from oppression. Sometimes it faced backlashes. The common denominator of those backlashes was that women should sacrifice for the common good, right? For example, women worked during the Second World War. And after the war, they were sent back home to vacate jobs for men because it was good for the family. Women have all, always insisted that their needs are not less crucial than their oppressors. But these were minor manipulations co compared to what postmodernism brought us. Postmodernism uh, is the school of thought that uh, denies epistemic certainty and stable meaning of ideas and things. Under postmodernism, there is no truth, just different discourses. And this is useless for feminist struggle. Why should we dedicate our life to changing society if there is no truth? We just pick uh, our favorite discourse and love it. So the notion of not, not truth disintegrates the feminist movement. A group struggling against its oppression must have a common understanding of goals, oppressions, narratives, of what is good and bad. Even so, our truth has constantly been challenged in the past, right? But in the past, the backlash was like shooting at a house and we built forts to defend ourselves. Now it's like termites eating our walls and we cannot see them until the house collapses. You can only hear them gnawing in the wall at night, but you are sleeping and you ignore them. Uh, under postmodernism, all the oppressions we had in the past are framed as empowerment. Everything is feminism. The basic assumptions of feminism have been redefined. Once upon a time, feminists called to listen and believe women to give a voice to their pain. Now neoliberal feminism demands to listen women in the situation of abductees who write from captivity, the captives, captives treat me well. So these voices now are proof that women are happy. You know it, right? Many women who live with a violent partner, they don't complain. Many women in prostitution say, leave me alone, I am okay. Sometimes the captivity is actual, sometimes it is economic or psychological, but no one makes an effort to rescue the, the woman from captivity because everyone is comfortable that she remains a prisoner and we don't have spent a fortune on rescue and ransom. Anyway, does neoliberal, neoliberal feminism promote completely random cliches? I do not think so. We can see that mainstream feminism uh, still fighting many misogynistic practices that are prof not profitable, domestic violence, not profitable, murder of women, not profitable, rape is not profitable. The oppression becomes choice and empowerment only when it makes money. The plastic surgery industry, the fashion, cosmetics, sex industry, all of them are putting capital into deep pockets. Not of the women, of course, they're consumers or in products. And today it is increasingly difficult to criticize those industries. You get a you judge women who chose all this response for any criticism. Remember what I said about the house eaten by the termites? The women who set boundaries do not produce enough profit. Neoliberal feminism undermines women's boundaries. If your boundaries are violated, you will more income 
the plastic surgery industries. They thrive on undermining body integrity as, as do the sex industries. And another postmodern ideology is gender ideology. This ideology assumes, for example, that every person has a sex and gender identity. Gender identity sometimes does not match your sex and the problem can be perfectly fixed by lifelong surgical and hormonal treatments. Uh, you will look a little bit more like another sex. Have you noticed? Once again, again, the plastic surgery industry, which is not the most ethical industry globally, it offers expensive solutions to psychological problems caused by the society. And anyone who believes wholeheartedly in this ideology will never be able to adopt the principles of abolitionism. Because what do we abolitionists say? That our boundaries are essential. Our boundaries are essential both emotionally and physically. Nobody can touch our body without genuine consent. Conscious detachment, detachment from the body or dissociation is one of the severe, severest damages of prostitution. One must be cured out of it to begin to recover. So how can this belief be con combined with this uh, cliche that your body is wrong uh, and your body is hated? What can, uh, when we abolitionists call for connecting to the body, abandoning the dissociation, putting boundaries, we trigger a person in such distress. So we automatically become enemies. Another problem with the gender ideology is uh, the attempt to rebrand our oppression as identity. What does gender ever mean? This is a polite word for sex. And uh, this is uh, in sociology, it is the allocation of social roles by sex. Sometimes they're harmless roles like uh, wearing pink and blue, but most often they are practices of oppression of women and superiority of men. A woman works for free and taken for granted, and the men performs paid work. And uh, there are also extremes like gender violence, domestic violence, or prostitution. In gender ideology, gender is an identity, a deep psychological feeling, which cannot be clearly defined, of course. So what does it actually mean, female, female gender identity? It means that someone identifies with the roles that society assigns to women. And it can be as harmless as wearing a dress and destructive like prostitution. But these are two very complicated connections between the two ideologists. But I think that the uh, devotion of trans activists to the crusade of the prostitution lobby can be much simpler as well. For example, many people in my country and abroad emphasize the trans community dependence on prostitution earnings, but nobody dares to say that unlike women, trans identified men are visibly present at every vertex of the triangle, pimp, sex buyer, prostitute. In, in trafficking in persons report, uh, each one of them and also the last one, see the page uh, uh, 310, which is a part about Israel and it says, some transgender children, as young as uh, 13 years old, uh, forget the very uh, dubious term transgender children, but this is what they say. Many of them run away from home, come under uh, the mentorship of transgender women and commercial sex. And sometimes these mentors exploit transgender children in commercial sex. And it is in the, in the trafficking persons report and nobody dares to say it. Uh, 
uh, there might might be even a simpler explanation of for this blind support of trans rights activists for the sex industry, like the basic identification with their sex group and its needs. Many people identify more with their own uh, demography. Who said this feeling of empathy is calculated and not inherent? Who said it disappears when you claim some different identity? So the, my last two arguments are not heard in Israel and elsewhere only for one reason. We put the integrity of the mechanism that make money above the truth, above humanity, above uh, women's right to dignity and well-being. Postmodernism and gender ideology have an enormous co contribution to all of this. <laughs>